Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about technology, instructional design, and the learning sciences. This week, Clara, Matt, and I are joined by Nafisa, who is a graduate of the Educational Technology Program here at Adelphi and is currently an educational technologist at Teachers College, Columbia University. And in this episode, we share some lessons that we learned and tips that we want to share with those who are new to online course design that might help you as you plan your own online course. But before we start, um, Nafisa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Nafisa Actor. I'm an educational technology specialist at Teachers College Columbia University. I am a graduate of Adelphi University. Um, and formerly, I worked at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and also the School of Professional Studies at Columbia University. I've worked on a lot of different kinds of programs. I've worked on online programs, blended hybrid programs, but also high flux programs. And I've done courses, uh, you know, that are part of credit degree programs, non-credit programs, and um, just online programs that are part of face-to-face programs. And in terms of subject matter, <laughs> I've worked on everything from pharmaceutical engineering, developmental disabilities, history, bilingual education, and that's to name a few, but the list kind of goes on for a while. Um, so that's just a little bit about me, and it's a pleasure to be here with you guys today. And you also graduated from Adelphi's EdTech program. Yes, specifically, I graduated from, from Adelphi's EdTech program. This episode is kind of framed as pro tips for people who are new to online learning. And I think maybe what we can do is we can just take turns giving very concrete ideas, suggestions, advice to anyone who might be new or newish to online learning and are uncomfortable with it. So um, let's start with you, Nafisa. So my first advice, um, it's really about reframing how you think about approaching online. For many individuals, going online was like a very last minute decision and it was forced on many people. And because of what's happening, most likely we'll have to continue online education in the summer and perhaps partially in the fall, we don't know. But, you know, one of the ways that we can shape our, the way that we frame teaching online is thinking about it like, you know, going into a classroom that you didn't necessarily go into to teach what you teach. So imagine that you teach really collaborative, you know, sessions where students are getting into small groups and they're pairing and sharing and then going and, you know, going into groups of four and talking with each other. But you got stuck with a classroom with auditoriums <laughs> seating. And now you have to figure out how to rethink teaching in this new physical space. So, you know, I, I'm asking people to kind of think of it as a challenge like that for uh, teaching online. You often get challenges like this in the physical space. So now think about this as just like one of those situations where you walked into a classroom that you weren't expecting to get. And now you just have to think about how do I teach in this space and be effective and still deliver the same instruction. Nafisa, I think that's a great first point. And it's, I didn't, I wish I had put it in my list of things to talk about, but I like the way that you phrase it. I think that a lot of people's first thought going online, they maybe have never taught an online class before, and they have something that works really well. And they're like, well, I want to do this online now. And then they end up doing it the hard way or even the hardest way. So they want to take something that they did in person and do it exactly the same 
and they realize that Canvas doesn't support it or Moodle doesn't have it or they just can't get everyone there in the same time. So putting it that way, like you go into a space and it's not what you expected and that's happened to everyone who teaches and now they need to, to make the best of it to modify what they were doing to take advantage of where they are. I feel that online teaching might be constraining at first, but uh, at the same time, it allows you to reimagine new physical spaces as well. I have been thinking a lot about this as people want to go back to uh, a new normal in schools, and that might entail physical separation and social distancing. And how can it be collaborative in a space like that? So I think that a positive about that is if you have an online environment uh, through Zoom, for example, that you can break into rooms and have people collaborate, you might have enhanced collaboration now that we cannot do that in a face-to-face -face environment, for example. So that could be a positive in terms of physical space too. I was just on a call with Diane Cruciolo, who teaches educational theater, who's teaching a fully online program, and she was using a theater metaphor. And that reminded me of kind of the in-person class as like improv versus online class as a kind of a more controlled play, even where you, you're able to design every outcome. You know, you can't control necessarily the audience reaction, but it's really the difference between the time and the space and the reaction that is one difference and not the only difference, certainly. So I like the idea of kind of thinking of it in terms of the change in space and venue. Um, and we are, as instructors, we are trying our best to adapt and making that challenge a little bit less intimidating, maybe. Talking about Diane and the, uh, relating to a play makes sense to me in that because that's kind of how I think about the online world. If we didn't plan for it, if we didn't design it, there, there's no space for it. If no one designed it, it can't, there's no way for it to occur. Doesn't mean that we know exactly what's going to happen. So for me, having some type of group chat, and right now my top choice has been Discord, but I also like Slack. I like Discord because it's free open source software. Uh, Slack is a commercial product. Uh, but if that's not your thing, you could use like maybe more commonly known software like WhatsApp or uh, GroupMe, which is text messaging. So for these, I use them to communicate quickly and easily with students for them to kind of help each other. I usually set up a chat room for each class with class specific stuff. And then you can also have small groups or have, you know, one-on-one -on -one direct messages. And it's, it's more synchronous than a discussion forum. And it's more mobile friendly than most of the course management systems that might have some similar functionality, but it seems a little more natural for faculty and students to use. So that's one thing I would look into if you're new to the online space, setting up some kind of group chat to, to make it easier to communicate with your students, especially one that has a really good mobile interface. Would you typically require students to be on it or is it more like optional? Well, you know I require the students to be on it. Uh, it's part of the class. So in, in my syllabus, I say create a Slack account. I send them the link and I tell them the channel and that is part of the class communication. So they're required to monitor that as part of like knowing what's happening in class. And sometimes um, I usually post things in multiple formats, but Slack is where I would do it first. Like reminder, this assignment's due or uh, here's the latest video I uploaded for you guys. Uh, so Slack is kind of the first place for that. But the best thing about it is students actually help each other sometimes. Uh, so if I can have students help each other, work on a problem together, like that's, that's when everybody wins. I've been thinking about this question of communication with students 
a lot because, you know, there's email, which they don't always check. There's, you know, various forums on Moodle um, or, you know, whatever LMS you're doing, you know, and so on there. And I think one thing that I still have trouble with sometimes is just making sure that students are getting the messages, you know, especially the important ones that I need them to know, like a change of deadline, that kind of thing. Um, and on top of also building community. Uh, so I, I guess my hesitation, especially because sometimes when students are not in the program and they don't, I, I hesitate to have them download another app. Um, but I was, I was kind of curious about what others think about that. I do think it, it's a good idea, though. I, I'm very bad at enforcing Slack. I, I tend to put it more as an option. But maybe I should make it not optional. I think for the computer science courses that I teach, the students really need it. So it makes them used to using it. Especially Slack has kind of come out of that environment. It has it makes it easy to like post code and uh, kind of in that text heavy environment of computer programming. It's a really good match for it. And I I definitely know what you're saying. Like I hate making students create like ten different accounts in different places, and they're not sure where things are going to go. I think that would probably be like an anti pattern of online teaching. But for for the students that we're preparing who are looking to be instructional designers or looking even to to teach computer programming, computer science, teaching them tools that are part of the field, I think is part of, of what we do. So, well, I mean, I think a lot of people in the last month have learned what Slack is for the first time, the same way that they learned what Zoom is. Like they're learning all these tools that we've been using for years, but for our students, it's nicer if they can learn it in the classroom environment. And then when they go to work on day one, they might be familiar with the exact tool or with something very similar. And it's not, you know, it's part of their preparation. Yeah. I think um, one thing that you both are touching on is the fact that, you know, the preference of tools will vary depending on your individual preference and your cohort's um, receptiveness to that tool. That's why it's really important to play and try different things to see what your cohort of students respond to and what works for all of you. I really like the idea of trying, at least trying and embracing some of these tools just because like email and discussion forums, you know, like formal discussion forums in uh, Moodle or Canvas, they, they have a formality to it. You know, the students typically go in there and it's a linear conversation that builds on each other and it's this long thread. It's very academic. And sometimes that's not the kind of conversation we want to have, right? Sometimes we just want to ask a quick question and get a quick answer or just say, hey, has anyone heard from Matt uh, about what he's expecting on this presentation or this thing. It, and that's just, you know, some some settings lend better to that. So for example, if you decided to take your students out to the quad or the lawn and host a part of your class, it would have a different impact on the kind of conversation you have than if you did it in a formal classroom with fixed furniture, right? Sorry to go back to the metaphor, but you know, it's essentially the same thing, having a different kind of communication tool lends itself to having a different kind of conversation. Yeah, one, one thing about Slack, for example, in a class I was teaching in the fall, it was a small class, we were meeting in person, it wasn't online. I invited them to the Slack room, they, everyone joined it, we said hi, like they'd all, they were all part of our, of our Slack already. And then I see them writing, and I'm, I'm like, what are you guys doing? They're like, well, we set up, we set up a, a group where you could talk to each other. And I'm like, your group is everybody except for me? And they're like, yeah. 
<laughs> so that was the student room to shadow the other room so they could have a little bit of their own space. Uh, and then, you know, students, this isn't about online. Students are afraid to make mistakes in front of their instructors and they should be able to make mistakes more freely. So especially in, in like high anxiety type classes where they're unfamiliar with the content, uh, you know, it's not bad to have a little bit of that less formal space that it kind of sits outside of a learning management system. I think I'm a little bit like Aaron in the sense that I am ask my students to set up kind of um, informal learning environment like what you were saying that they set up by themselves and most of them I think are using group me right now for these they help each other and I say do this when you do group work and set up whatever works best for you and but I'm I am not on it but I like the idea of being on it and um, the only problem that I feel that I feel I feel a little overwhelmed as an instructor um, for example, getting all of their uh, phone numbers and setting up the groups, right? So uh, doing that with 80 students is, is kind of overwhelming. Right. There are a couple other reasons why I like Discord and Slack more than, than WhatsApp or GroupMe. One, uh, they're independent of your phone number. And two, you can send out a join link. So you create the link and then you can send that to your 100 students and it's on them to join. You also want to meet people where they are. So if they all have WhatsApp already, and that's a very nice way to do it, uh, to set it up. Or if they're very comfortable, you can just use SMS over GroupMe. You don't even need to, to put the app on. So you can get maybe that last like 5% of students, you can connect to them more easily with that where they would never have set up Slack, you know. So it, like Nafisa was saying, it depends on the, the tenor of the group that you have and what they're comfortable with and also like what you're comfortable with and what you like. If I was to kind of recap the advice, it is to set up some channel that maybe is outside of the formal academic platform so that students can have more immediate access to you, but also they have the ability to have informal conversations without the instructor and the basic idea being to, to build a community that might seem lacking in an online class. Is that somewhat accurate? Well said, yep. So there we go. Clara, what's your advice? I think when we jumped into this remote learning emergency situation, to me, the most uh, shocking difference was uh, the emphasis on synchronous learning. And we have been talking about this a lot. And that was new to me as an online instructor. I would heavily rely on asynchronous learning just because I think it was it's, it is one of the advantage, advantages of teaching online that you can do it on your own time. You don't have a set space or time to meet. So then when I had to somehow now give these weekly lessons, I was not totally prepared and also a little re reluctant because that's not my style of teaching. I am very a collaborative and interactive when I teach face-to-face. -face. So, so I started looking for tools that would allow me to still be interactive in this environment. So I think my, my suggestion would be to, if you are an instructor, that um, to keep your values. You know, if, let's say if you are interactive, you want, to, if you want your classes to be collaborative, you want, want to keep that. There are tools online tools that will allow you to do that. So some of them that I found were Pear Deck, Zoom has some features, uh, the breakout rooms in Zoom uh, that allow you to just have your students work in small groups, right? So I think these tools um, can bring back that, that interactivity that you usually have in face-to-face -face classes. 
So for people who don't know Paradeck, can you just briefly describe it? There are two, I think that I know of two uh, tools out there, Paradeck and Nearpod, that allow the students to interact with the slides in many ways. So they allow the students to access the slides so they can draw on the slides, they can uh, write on the slides, they can answer polls, write uh, responses like a chat on the slides. So the slides become a place for, for interaction instead of just uh, images or te written text that they read. They become a place for collaboration. These are for synchronous sessions, right? Or is it for asynchronous as well? I'm using it more for synchronous, but both of these apps, they have uh, what they call student pace mode. And so they, they also allow for you to, let's say, create a module or a lesson and include these features there. So let's say like a quiz or a game or drawing on the slides again, all of these features uh, would be in an asynchronous kind of lesson that the students can complete on their own time. I think Defisa, you have something very similar to this one. Yeah, for the asynchronous component, I think especially if you're considering lecturing uh, and delivering a lecture in an asynchronous environment, thinking about tools like Edpuzzle and at Teachers College, we use PlayPosit. And, you know, they, they give you a lot of opportunities to have students interact and engage with your lecture, which I think is important because it's a very passive experience to listen to a lecture online, um, you know, and as you listen to this podcast, you may even find yourself, your attention goes away from time to time. So, you know, trying to add points of engagement in your lectures, I think is really important for one, continuing to engage your students and also setting the expectation that they have to do something to engage with your lecture. And when I say, engage, it could be reflective pauses. So you could ask students before the lecture starts to reflect on what they're bringing into the lecture and at the end tie it back and say, how has their you know mindset changed or what have they learned and what do they take away from this? What are still the questions that lingered, which is important to ask so that you can get some feedback on what to continue to build upon. So or, you know, if you're teaching a very technical course and you need to understand or students need to understand some things before they move forward, you could also have multiple choice questions. So that's, you know, where I was thinking for asynchronous um, interactive uh, lectures. Do you or anyone have do's and don'ts for kind of how do you frame these prompts? So, for example, in Edpuzzle, I, when I see them, oftentimes they are, the question is, did you just, can you just recite the last thing I said kind of questions? Like, what did I last say? And then, um, do you, I mean, do you think those are effective? Or, or I mean, you mentioned reflective questions, which definitely sounds better, um, at least more in depth. But is there room for that type of like, are you, you know, are you even listening type of questions? Or I'm just curious about thoughts along those lines. Well, I don't do it enough, and I know that my some of my segments are too long. Like I shoot for for around eight minutes if I'm doing like an instructional video or a slide cast or something. Usually they're screencasts, but yeah, you know sometimes they'll, they'll run into twenty thirty minutes where the students can pause it because they're asynchronous, but there's no real break in it. And um, when I have time, I usually go back and break them up. I don't usually put little prompts in between. But personally, I don't, I think that there is room for just like, you know, hey, who did this? You know, do you remember, especially if it's something you think is important, 
So I, I think those very, you know, low level cognitive, like recall stuff, they do have a little bit of room in there. Uh, it depends on the content that you're teaching. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, Matt. It really depends on the kind of content you're teaching. But, you know, if, I think you can do maybe a combination of both. So if you're teaching a programming class and you need to know that your students know how to write and if uh, if function, it's that's really important because it's so basic, right? Um, so you need to really know that they understood what that function does and they know how to write it. But at the end also, you know, opening it up and asking, you know, what, how have they maybe seen this in something that they interact with? Um, that that's a higher level question and it's more open-ended and it is like application of, you know, the topic that you're teaching. So I think if you can do a combination, that's really good. But also, you know, lots of subject matters, it's really easy to ask some reflective questions that ask students to reflect on, you know, what they're bringing into the lecture so that it feels like, and I think that's really important starting off with what you're bringing in so that you have that at the top of your mind as you go through the lecture. It's kind of like, you know, doing some kind of meditative exercise before you start a class session. You're mentally preparing for that session. So, you know, in some ways, I think that's that can definitely help as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Even if the instructor is not reviewing it, just asking them to take the time to reflect on it and kind of gather what they thought, what was hard, what was easy, how it connects to stuff should be good for them to, to solidify the learning. Yeah. And I do thank you so much for mentioning that, Matt. You know, and it's important that those reflective questions aren't necessarily things that you feel like you have to read every single one either, because oftentimes you might start a class by asking students to jot down some thoughts about something and you do not read every single piece of paper that students have in front of them. So think of it kind of like that. If you're asking a student to reflect, it's not necessarily something you have to read um, because it's electronic and collected. Uh, sure, you can look through it if you think students are having a problem, but don't feel like you have to read it. I have been exploring so many new tools now, and it's exciting because you see what other people are doing and everything. And these, some of these new tools also provide really great templates. And uh, Pear Deck, for example, provides uh, templates for beginning, middle, and end of class. And I love those because it gives you ideas on how to begin the lesson, how to, what to do, activities what, that to do in the middle and end, and you can adapt to what you already do. And, um, and then these help with the prompts, right? So what do you ask in the beginning of the lesson? So yeah, so for example, the, the content that I teach is really tied to language learning and social emotional learning as well. So what I have been doing with my students now in the sociolinguistics class, for example, is um, I start with, they are writing about their lives in quarantine and we are using these um, these these writings to think about how you would teach that to English language learners, multilingual learners. How uh, what kinds of scaffold you need to do? So so we start with um, really processing the beginning of the class. So there is one slide that you that I put. What is filling up your bucket? What is draining it? And they input their questions, and that came from a template on Pear Deck. They can draw on the slides. They can. So we have been having fun doing these things. So I think that we have, been, have to be very thoughtful, yes, about the prompts that we provide so that it generates good discussion and as we do in the face-to-face -face class as well. 
before I get to my point, um, is do you think that there's a upper limit to how many external applications or sites that we can reasonably ask students to log into? Specifically, I'm talking about things that they need to kind of create a new account. So like in Adelphi, Moodle um, and VoiceThread are kind of integrated. So even though VoiceThread is technically an external application, it doesn't feel that way. Um, Google Forms and, and, and all those things are also doesn't feel like external because students can just use them. But, you know, we talked about Slack earlier and then, and, and then various other applications here. I know I'm conscious about like how many things I can have students kind of go out and sign up for. And, and so what are your, t- what's your take on that? I'm torn. Um, I, I want to keep it to a minimum and, you know, I'd say, three is a good thing. Like course management, like the stuff that's in it and maybe plus two tools. So all the things they get once they log into their university account and then like two more things might be a good limit. But then like when I'm working and I boot my computer and I sit down, I log into like 14 different things and that's, that's part of it. Right. So, you know, I sign in to the computer, to the university, I log in to, to GitHub. I log into maybe some, some image search thing. I've got Slack. I've got discord. Um, I've got signal messaging. Um, you know, it's like, and they're all important for me to, to do my work and what I'm working on. And there are 10 different things I'm forgetting also. Be, but I know that if I have to reboot my computer, it takes me a long time to get everything logged in and set up and, and working the way I want. So it's the same thing. If it's related to your field, and it doesn't have to just be our field, but there are professional tools that people use. And part of what we're doing is preparing them to use those tools and those kind of habits of, of work and, and the contextual part of it. I'm not saying that they should have to do 20 things for it, but that would be more how I decide if it's worth them learning or not. So if it's something just for the class, it's something I want to show them that they have to create an account somewhere, fill out three pages of forms just to watch a video I want them to watch. I'd probably rather not do that. But if it's something and it's it's going to take them a while to set it up, but it's something that they're going to be using maybe for the next 10 years, then, you know, then it's worth it. When you're also designing your course and thinking about these tools, understand that students might be taking four other courses where other people are also thinking about these things. So even if you only require three, that times four ends up being a lot more, right? So, you know, just being mindful of that. And also, you know, a lot of um, students end up having group work and they choose other tools to collaborate with their groups. So, you know, uh, one individual may use many, many uh, external tools, but I think keeping it to a minimum and trying to integrate um, to the best of your abilities, um, all of the tools into one place or a centralized space to the best of your ability. So if you are using something like Slack or Discord, you know, including that link in your uh, course management system or learning management system. And then, you know, VoiceThread is already integrated for you. Think about maybe creative ways of using pause points using VoiceThread. So can you create a slide in VoiceThread to start your presentation to ask students reflective questions that they can comment on before they move into the content and then pause in the middle and go forward? Um, so, you know, finding creative ways to take the idea, these ideas or general concepts um, and using the tools that you already have at your leverage that's super easy for students to use, I think, is important. 
Even going through that exercise of writing them all down will help you decide what is essential and what isn't and give you a sense because you might not realize all of the different components that are new to some of your students that haven't been using it. So that's definitely a good tip. I guess it also depends on how many accounts, I mean, you could use five applications, but if it's kind of spread out over the semester, it's less problematic than, you know, having students sign up for five things on day one. So I guess that's also something to factor in. Yeah, the other thing too, all of these tools that um, I have been using right now, I have been using five new ones, and they all use Google uh, Gmail accounts for logging in. So that's super great because it's, it's the same account and password that you use for everything. So that's pretty helpful, I think. One thing that I've tried to spend a lot of time on is trying to make sure that when I give students instructions or guidelines for an assignment that is very clear, clear in the sense that I, I tend to use numbered lists or bulleted lists. So a general advice is to make sure that instructions are clear, they're simple, you take out as much text as you can. I think that that is, for me, that's all that's always been a, a learning experience because sometimes um, an assignment using the same set of instructions could be fine for two semesters. And then in one particular class, it'll completely confuse uh, some students. I don't know that, if that ever happened. I find that really interesting why there's such a difference. It's just I think it was just today I had this realization where I got a little bit annoyed because I, I usually ask students to name their files properly because you know they, they send you a file and they're all paper one with no name on the file. And that is just, that's, that's just so annoying for me. Um, so I, you know, I have them just put your name on the file. It's not that hard. And that was like step nine in kind of a list of things. And then I, and, and then for lunch, I had to microwave something and I had four steps and I was confused. So I think it's, uh, it's worth kind of reflecting on like, you know, things could be crystal clear to you, but students A are maybe not reading every word that you write. Sadly, that's, just the reality that they're not going to read every single word you write. So the fewer words you use um, and, and the more clear you can, the better. I would even say if you can go to presenting your assignment or talking about your rubric, um, syllabus, anything in a visual form, like doing a screencast, that might be a little bit better as well because uh, I think um, students are more likely to, to view it. Well, it reminds me of something that you wrote in the notes when we were talking about it. Um, like along with giving instructions, like it's a design process and you need to test it and people understand things differently and so you might it might be clear as day and even for 90% of your students it was too but uh, you know you need to show it to people and see how they understand it I you know I've never ever posted something that I didn't have to change later so instructions that are unclear that that contradict something that I put somewhere else in the course like it would be nice if it were you know write once and then launch it and it's rock solid but that's just it's, it hasn't happened to me yet uh, maybe next year I noticed that the students will have questions no matter for example I created an assignment now that was very open-ended for them to uh, create a lesson and um, and I myself it wasn't new assignment so it was new to me to me too and I, I, I recorded a video of it 
um, two actually. I, I provided multiple written instructions in different ways with links and examples. And still now I'm getting many emails from students saying, Professor Bowler, I'm so confused about this. And they, sometimes they just want to talk with you about it. And there's that thing about getting reassurance, I guess, that it's okay. And it's an assignment that you can make mistakes. It doesn't have to be perfect. But I think it's also the nature of the assignment, too. If he said, when you're training people and helping them create new courses, like what, what do you tell them? What tips do you provide? What kinds of things do you see when they're writing up instructions? You know, do you have any guidelines? You actually do this. We only have to do it for ourselves and, and maybe if we're training students to do it, but it's your bread and butter. Um, yeah, I think, you know, what Clara was saying is really spot on. We have to really think about what is the nature of the assignment. So is it a creative assignment or are you asking for something really concrete? And if that's the case, can you just give them a template? And oftentimes if it's not, a creative assignment, even if it's a presentation that you're making, but you want specific criteria, just giving them a template with the pages or the slides for, for that, if that's your expectation, really helps because you're essentially giving, you're saying, fill this out for me. It's like, fill out a form for me. Um, so I think that's, you know, really thinking through, is it creative or, you know, is it something that you, you just need a concrete deliverable from your students? And especially with group work, it really helps to give them as much as possible. Um, with creative assignments, it's really, really tricky. Um, and I think you, you, you all touched upon this. Um, you know, because students, one, students really care about grades. And, you know, us as students cared about grades. I think it's important. And, uh, you know, it's students are always going to want to make sure they get the best grade possible. So they, one, want some reassurance. Two, want some examples. So if you can provide examples, um, that usually helps give them some guidelines. I usually say examples, plural, because if you give them one, then it just becomes a thing that they, you know, mold their uh, work after. Um, but, you know, also for yourself, reflecting a little bit on what your expectations are. So I have um, some faculty that I work with that really want to give students a uh, you know, they want to give students a creative outlet so they can say, okay, write a lit review or create a comic or do something of your own, you know, own choosing. And, you know, I say, okay, that's great. I love that. We should give students the ability to be creative, but what are the boundaries that need to go around that? Because if you get a comic and you're like, what is this? I don't understand how you ever came up with this. That's not good <laughs> um, because that student's depending on you for a grade and you know, even if they put a lot of thought and effort into it and you're looking at it like, how could you ever hand this into me? Uh, it does, you know, it doesn't meet my expectations. That's not a good thing. So really giving students, you know, options for being creative, but providing boundaries on your expectations. So even asking them for like a one page reflection on what, you know, theories they applied or what concepts from the course they applied. Um, and you know how what their design process was like for that I think is good to have sometimes if you're allowing them flexibility and you know I in general I really like the short reflection pieces because I think anytime we are letting students be creative and do their own thing there's going to be lots of things that we don't understand about their approach to it so that reflection piece and giving that reflection piece an actual grade value you know saying that you know 
20% of the grade for this assignment is just that reflection paper and saying that I want to, I want to get into your mind and understand how you came up with this um, and giving it an actual point value is important. Initially, when I started uh, teaching online, I didn't have a really good structure for the grading. And I got a lot of questions from students, and you're so right that they worry about that. And then when I started having points for things was when all the questions stopped. And, it, and really, I do really great for participation and completion. I tell them, I say, look, if you're really thoughtful about what you're doing, so I'm not going to read it and say if I agree or disagree. It's more about when you're thinking about this and, and you get all the points and if you're commenting on each other. And then when I started doing that, um, it was kind of magical because it eased their anxiety about the questions that they had. And then they really focused on really participation and engaging on these assignments. So that's a really good point that the grading part. Uh, so a tip would be really be thoughtful about how you're grading things. And these uh, course management systems are really good at tracking and helping with grading. I think students also come in with different experiences. Some students will thrive with the looser structure, the kind of, you know, you give them a, a general parameters and they will work really well with that. And some students will be more comfortable checking in with you regularly. And, you know, I, I sense that pretty early on in the class. And, and usually there's always um, maybe one or two. And, and, and that's okay. I think, I think for me, it's more about making sure that they understand the assignment and knowing the best way to communicate those expectations to them through whatever modality that, that works for them. When it comes to preparing for online instruction, really over-prepare and be responsive to the room. Just like if you prepared a slide deck for class or, you know, a presentation for class and you looked around the room and saw that students were lost, you would slow down. Really try to do that in the online space. If you're seeing, the great thing about online is that we can get data points on, you know, who's engaging with the class, how much time people are spending. So in the beginning, especially really pay attention to that and see if students are engaging. And if they're not, think about how can you respond to them like how can your presence you know you sending them more messages not more messages don't overwhelm them with messages either but you know you saying hey I'm really excited to get started with this course with you here are some things that you know you need to catch up on in order to stay on track with the course and just you know being supportive of them and, you know, understanding when you need to provide more resources, less resources, shift things around for their needs. Um, and, you know, just experimenting with different things, because ultimately, what you, works for you may not you know, work for everyone. And so with all of the advice we're giving, all the tools we're talking about, you may hate them all and that's okay. Um, you might just find something that works for you and your students. And that's ultimately what's important because it's really about what your instruction looks like in this space and how can that create a nurturing and welcoming environment for your students. I think that's one of the most important points. And is like my, my, in my notes, my last thing I wrote, don't make it so complicated that there's no flexibility, but also don't make it so complicated or in a style that 
you can't maintain the course the way you set it up. So you have to teach in a style that matches your personality and your teaching style. So if, you, if you're not going to grade something because you created really complicated rubrics for the grading and then you turn everything back to the students a month late, you have to find something else to do it. So you need to find a balance. Like other people maybe like just crush those rubrics and they create them easily and they make sense to students and they're easy to grade their stuff. For other people, it might actually be a hindrance to giving feedback that they want to give. So, you know, there's no, there's no one solution to it. And it's always going to be a match between you and the students. You know, a course is an event. It's not like something static in time that is always the same. So wait, so are you talking about complication for the student? or Let's the- say that I were, I were no, for, for, for me and the students, let's say that at the beginning of the semester, I say every week, I'm going to give you a 10 point quiz, a short reflection assignment. Um, I'm going to give you a participation grade and I'm going to, each one is going to have its own rubric for it, right? This kind of had the way Aaron teaches. <laughs> so, and everything's going to be in a spreadsheet uh, that everyone has their own individual thing. Like three weeks into the course, I'm going to have not graded any of the quizzes. The students are going to be frustrated and um, I'm going to go back and read the reflections and then going to try to redesign the whole course. And it's going to be like a, a bad thing that I set up, even though I thought I was doing the right thing. But um, and because I can only use the rubric that I set up to grade them, I can't actually give them the feedback that I was hoping to because it doesn't fit into my rubric. So like that's the kind of disastrous situation that I have put myself in um, sometimes by misdesigning a course. And I like to share my wisdom. So you guys don't don't do that. Think about what you can do, how much time it is, and the way that you can most take advantage of, of your your abilities. Or if you want to improve something, something that you're really going to have the time to, to put into that if you want to try something new, just realize it's going to take twice as much time and maybe it's worth it because you're going to learn something new. But you need to, to be clear about it and, and design the course in that way that, that it can flow and, and that you can actually do what you set out for yourself the same way that your students need to be able to do what you set out for them. In one of my classes, I had students, I always felt that students need to know more about learning theories, right? Um, so, and so in that class, I had them each kind of pick a learning theory, you know, the big ones that uh, that I felt like they should be familiar with, constructivism, anchored instruction, situated learning, those type of things, because those are, if, as a teacher, you kind of know them in passing, you might see them. Um, and what they had to do was they had to research it. I, I thought I was pretty, pretty clear. They had to like give like a ver- basic background, what kind of, what was the a very short history of what was it coming out of, key theorists, what were the strengths, criticisms, and then have them come up with discussion questions, right? So that sounds simple enough for me, right? And then I had, I, I spaced them out throughout the semester because when I tried it several semesters back, um, I had everyone present on the same day. So they were like a five-hour presentation on you know a bunch of theories. So I learned from that lesson. I said, let's space it out over time. You sign up for a date, you present. That makes sense. So on top of not give, being clear enough about the discussion questions, because writing a discussion question, a good one that is worth discussing is actually really, really hard. Um, you don't think, and I, what do you guys, what do you guys think about that? That's not a good yeah, <laughs> discussion question. No. It's, do, it's do, like, oh. do, you, do you agree with Vygotsky? Yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, don't don't make fun of my students. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Your students no, it's my better. Students. I'm not making fun of them. It's it's better than that. It, it was better than that. But but it was it is hard. So um, on top of that, the complication was that I had my own 
voice thread slides that they had to respond to. And so I was trying to balance so that if they had to present or if they had a discussion question to present, I didn't want to overwhelm them. So now I had to kind of adjust it. And it, it just became very complicated. As you said, that's the issue. And so I decided what, I mean, they don't know it yet, but what I decided is that I'm going to give everyone an A because that was my fault. And I told them, I mean, it's a, I, it's an instructional design course. I, I told them this was my intention. And, and here's, here's the worst thing, not worst thing, but I was going to say, you know what? You can actually go back and edit your voice thread slides, fix it. And then I was going to give them a quiz. And then it was like, no, no, that is just going in the wrong direction. And so I decided to just scrap it. Um, I mean, everyone did present and, you know, they varied in how well they fit my expectation. But I think, you know, that's an example of something being too complicated. And if that happens, I feel like then you, the instructor needs to own up and then kind of say, don't make it the student's fault, you know. Yeah, I think another thing that's really important is, uh, and you know, it's, it's really, it varies contextually, but setting some milestones, you know, depending on um, who your students are, and how advanced they are in a degree program, it might help to set some milestones for them. So, you know, if you're looking for something very specific, so, it, you know, let's say these are um, theories you want them to present to the class and the class isn't learning about them in some other way, you might first ask them to like give you an outline or something like a one pager for you to review before they make it into a formal presentation. And, you know, they might do something really creative and cool, but it just like, you know, is going in the wrong direction from what you anticipated. Um, just giving little micro milestones is really helpful. Again, it varies depending on context and cohort. Um, and of course, term length, you know, so in summer, when you only have six weeks, maybe it's not something you can, you know, do very well. And that's good to just acknowledge that, hey, it's summer, if I'm introducing a big project at the beginning of the semester, and I expect something by week three for them to take my feedback and deliver something by week four or five, maybe isn't going to happen. Um, so just also keeping that in mind. But yeah, ha sometimes having milestones is really, really helpful for bigger um, projects. And it's it also uh, forces you to give feedback often, which I think is important because students do worry about their grades. So having some feedback and reassurance really that they're on the right track or if they're not, how to, you know, change tracks a little bit. Um, that's really important. I'm going to give my clearest advice, which is to put dates and make them clear along with your courses. You see a lot of, well, one, the default setting in most learning management systems is like topic one or week one or session one or module one, module two. But that doesn't make sense to anybody except for the, the actual program itself. Like you can't remember if you want to go back and see, well, when did we do constructivism? Was that module four? Uh, or when is this due? It's due in, in week nine of the course. So replace that stuff and put dates and topics and think about how you're organizing the information for different uses. Like everyone wants to know what they have to do this week. Like that's the most important thing and make that clear. And then, but they also want to go back and see like what they wrote in week three because now they're going to use that in their final paper, but they don't know it's week three. They know it was when you guys talked about constructivism. So you need dates and you also need topics that are meaningful within the context of the course. And it's something that's easy to do. So it's not, it's not a hard one. To tap into that, uh, to match into the syllabus, right? You can get the, the, the syllabus. The syllabus needs to have it too. 
but also like some things will have the due date, but you have to open it up to see when it is like put it in the title. If it's due on, on Tuesday, make that part of the title. Don't make the students like link through into it. Everything shouldn't be hidden. You want to like make it apparent and kind of bring the information to the forefront to make it more usable for the students. And, you know, if you have time, like show it to one person or two people and say, uh, when is the midterm for this class? Um, when are we going to be talking about whatever book? And just see if they can find it. If they can't find it easily, then it's not a well-designed course in terms of the information structure for it. So it's not something that we all have a background in, but it's something that can like really, just like those simple things, dates and topics, just make things a lot easier for, for people to use. The way my office works, we do that kind of building for the faculty. So, we, you know, as a practice, we do it all the time just because it is so important to always have the topic. We include, you know, if a class in the syllabus is structured in weeks, then we would put the week number, topic, and date all together as well um, so that it mimics the syllabus um, at least syllabus schedule pretty well. So, but it is definitely something that we would advise faculty that we don't work with. And I think it's really, really important just for transparency and even adding in some verbs. So, you know, just saying submit or something before that. So people know that this is a place where you're coming to submit something because, you know, iconography works sometimes, it doesn't work sometimes, it works for some people better than others. And, you know, depending on how good your interface is, those icons may or may not be super intuitive to your students. So, you know, like literally saying week three constructivism, submit blah assignment and, you know, five, 14, whatever, whatever. It just helps everyone know exactly what they're going into. This isn't for everybody, but for every week, I have one section that's like read, watch, listen, one section, which is do, like do these things, and one section that is what is due this week. So if it's productive, it goes in that last section, whether it's a, something they turn in or just like write something in a forum. Um, so try to be consistent with it also so people know where to find things. Like that, that's a big problem in an online course is like, where do you find that information? Where do you look it up? Where do I go to turn this thing in? And it, there's not one way to do it, but being consistent and being clear just make it easier for everybody. I think maybe that's not stated enough because there are different ways of presenting an online course, right? You can present it by week. You can have everything on the same page. And in a classroom, you enter a classroom and it's a classroom and classrooms are more similar um, than online classes are similar to each other. So I think if as an instructor, you have your own way of designing a class, but students might be taking two other online classes, which are presented in a completely different way. I think that Realizing that is is very helpful, and related to that, I am a big fan of making you know hyperlinking whatever you can so that students can click on something right away instead of saying go to that page, click on that link, and then watch that video in that other link. You know these things are usually part of all learning management systems. Sometimes they are even automatic. Take advantage of that because it makes the navigation a lot easier and information transparent. So if I think about online courses from a student's point of view, the first thing that a new student to online learning, how does the class start? Like they, you know, like these basic things that, that we think are, are simple or obvious, you know, someone every semester emails me, I signed up for your online class. How does it start? Because they've been, since they were four or five, they've been going to school and they know they show up somewhere at a certain time. Uh, but 
you know, everything is new for many of our students in, in an online environment. So what is your recommendation? How, how do you... you... You know, I was looking over my courses today because we were... I usually have a pre-class stuff because the first week shouldn't really be about getting everything set up and I want people to be able to take time and get used to it. So about two weeks out, I will email them with expectations, anything that people need to, to buy or purchase or track down. And I want them to do to set up the accounts that they are going to need for it and all that. So hopefully even before the first day, they know how it's going to work and they've had the syllabus, even if the course isn't live, because sometimes I don't launch the course until a couple of days before it's ready. And then you have to keep in mind that people register late and you have to, you have to keep an eye on them because they missed all this early stuff. So, you know, you have to monitor that. Uh, how do I start a course? I usually do a little icebreaker of some kind depend, that's relevant to the class. Uh, I often start with video from the students, even though I don't use it as much as other people. But I do start the class with something where they can see who else is in there, get to know each other, and it also helps me get to know them a little bit to see them, see their body language, and, and get a sense of who they are as a person. I think it's important also not to forget that an online class can also build community. For example, this activity that Matt suggested is a community building activity. I also spend some time during the first weeks uh, building communities. So I set up some forums for community building, um, getting to know each other kinds of things related to the uh, course, um, but having personal questions. You know, learning online can be incredibly isolating and it often requires students to be very diligent, self-directed learners, which often they're underprepared for. Um, and, you know, sometimes we're underprepared for it as well. And now they're forced to work in the online space. So the more community you can build in, the more presence as, your, as the instructor you can build in and the more peer engagement and like um, just like having someone that you identify with, you know, just knowing that, oh, you know, if I, if I'm feeling lost, and I don't feel comfortable asking my instructor a question, because I feel stupid asking it, um, I have a peer that I can go to that's really, really important. And continually giving students the kinds of reminders or little notes that you might give them in the beginning or at the end of class. So you know, maybe having some kind of announcement or, you know, if you're using Slack or Discord or something um, is really important because, you know, in class, as you wrap up, you might say, okay, remember, you're going to have, a, you know, this thing due in two weeks. So if you have questions, come to me. Uh, those little things are also important to do in the online space and they build your presence. So it's a good way of, you know, continuing the conversation and leaving space for students to one, both for the students who are going to struggle with being self-directed learners and managing their learning in an environment where they don't have to show up somewhere and get a fixed amount of instruction over a fixed time. Um, yeah, I think it's important to build that in. The way I start the course, I actually just have a big link that says, um, if you're overwhelmed, click here, because that also helps with the students who join late, um, because there is a pre-class survey, because I'm looking for their background knowledge of, about something. Um, I want them to look at the syllabus. I want them to take a syllabus quiz. I want them to introduce themselves. If you've taken my class before, you know how to do that. But like if, if you're brand new, having something bright red or something catchy so that they could they know to go there um i think it's helpful one of the positives uh, of the online environment is that it allows students to experiment with expressing themselves in different ways using uh, multimodal media for example 
you have boards, you have posters, you have video, you have voice, besides the writing. The writing can become collaborative with Google Docs. So I think that um, if you teach something that is usually very uh, conventional, right, with final papers, and there is only way on one way of expressing learning, for example, with a test or with a final paper, you would find that uh, the online learning environment affords so many other ways of expression, and that I would highly recommend experimenting with those because your students will gain from them. Depends on the course I'm teaching, but some of them where where there's like a, a kind of rhythm for the assignments, like every week we read like three or four articles, we talk about them, we move on, and maybe there's like some little assignment too. You can get, it, it can be a little bit tedious in an online class in a way that it might not be as tedious in an in-person class. So I am looking for ways to, even though we're, we're covering similar concepts maybe, like you can't always just be like, all right, post a 500 word response to it, uh, ask two questions from other students. Like by week nine of the course, like you, you know, you've got to find ways to mix it up a little bit. That's why like Aaron does some great things. I learned, I like that he is the student podcasting, have them lead sessions, like conversations with you, which is how this podcast started, right? Like a lot of that, um, you know, I'm always looking for more ideas like that to kind Kind of break up the format of it uh, because you know online learning can be a little bit of a struggle if you're doing a lot of it like three or four classes that are all online and they're all kind of similarly paced and you know so we need to keep that in mind too i think often people think or people are somehow advertised that online designing an online course means that you do it once and then you can just like repeat it on auto or something. I don't know. It's um, not just with online learning even. It's just like any class. People would think that teaching is just about repeating what you did last semester. Yeah, that's really sad to think about. But <laughs> thinking about instruction as something that's really responsive to your students and their needs and, you know, understanding that this is an opportunity to experiment and see what your students respond well to what they're really engaged in and then you know learning from that and changing it right so Erin you gave that example of that assignment or project that you gave your students and really understanding that hey maybe I should have changed this a little bit or I should have done some other things to make it better and now you know for the next time you do it how Maybe you can make it a little bit more successful or what is a realistic expectation to have of your students? And I think you kind of need to have that view. Otherwise, it becomes really static and boring even for you because then your responsibility as an educator is just to be there and repeat things. And do is that really something that makes you feel fulfilled and engaged and happy? Yeah, the the worst is when you're teaching courses like our multimedia design or the instructional design course, like or online learning. Like you can't mess that stuff up. Yeah, you can't. You're teaching it. You exactly. can't like give some crappy PowerPoint when you're teaching a <laughs> multimedia design course. It's got to be like, you know, they'll be like, yeah, that violates Myers' principle of redundancy. And like, uh, all right. But that's good because that (laughs) means they're learning, right? So Uh, that's why I did it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) do a non-example. (laughs) Make bad presentations and for students to call call me out. Is that the idea? That's not. I mean, that's not the worst idea. I mean, I mean, there there is legitimate kind of idea like having students point out errors. I think that's that can be interesting. Um, Not an excuse, but you know, (laughs) a learning teaching moment. 
But I think that's the thing about design. It's never perfect, right? And every user is different, right? So, you know, what's intuitive to one person is it may not be to another person. And then, you know, we're also thinking about cross across cultures. Sometimes we see variabilities in that as well. So, you know, I think it's so important to push ourselves to do the best we can, but also acknowledge that it's never going to be perfect for everybody and that's okay. That's a great place to end this episode, I think. I agree. Don't be too hard on yourself. But also be good. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> thank you, Nafisa, for taking time to talk to us. Thank hey, you Nafisa, so much. It's great to see you and talk to you and hear about what you've been up to. Thanks for inviting me. It was really I good. I thought you would be good for this because I know you've been, you've been working with people. I'm sure it's been crazy uh, trying to get everything up and running online. Yeah, it has been. But, you know, at the same time, and I keep telling myself this maybe out of denial or to keep myself sane, I get to help people do something at a time like this and I don't have to risk my own well-being. So a privilege at the same time. Um, and, you know, so many other people do, you know, are supporting us and have to risk their well-being um, to do that. So, you know, it's a privilege in many ways, too. That's even a better way to end the episode. Yeah, I was going to say, Aaron, I'm glad you're still <laughs> recording. You have to put that in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again for your time. Okay. Thank you, all, everyone. Talk to you guys soon. Yeah, take, take care, easy, everyone. Well. Stay safe. Bye -bye. You too. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. -bye. Bye.